0: Hey guys, Pastor Marcus here. Welcome to the Pomo Pastor Podcast, where our focus is going to be how to optimize your local Adventist church. I hope you're blessed by what you hear and that it inspires you to make a difference in your local church today. Welcome to the Pomo Pastor Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about public evangelism, traditional evangelism. Is it dead? Does it live on? Or is there simply a better way to do it? We're gonna talk about that and, uh, and a few other things with my friend and colleague, Pastor Nathaniel Tan. Pastor Nat. Well, I'll just call you Nat because you don't like titles, which is cool.
1: Yeah, that's cool, man.
0: Yeah, you're a t- typical millennial, bro. <laughs> so Nat, um Nat, I just wanna introduce you before we get into the into the conversation. You you're a pastor, as I mentioned. Um, you're a you're a scholar. And um and you're also a cyclist.
1: Just pause there. I don't think I'm a scholar. No, no, no. Wait a minute. No,
0: no, no. That's 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 my that's my personal legend of Nat Tan. All right. So we've got to stick to it. We can't. We okay. can't. We can't get rid of Scholar, bro. You. <laughs> well,
1: to those out there who're listening, I'm just a regular comment man. So. <laughs> well,
0: um, okay. here's the thing, um. That for those who are listening, uh anytime I have a question on on Greek, I just call Nat. So that's you know that's that's why I consider him. If if he's not a if he's not like a scholar of the scholars, he's my personal scholar. So uh, <laughs> I don't remember any of that stuff, man. So um and you're also a cyclist. That's what you do for fun.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's right. I love getting my push bike and riding out the miles. Uh, yeah, it's really good, enjoyable, and a race as well
0: yeah so i'm curious because i'm not a cyclist i I enjoy fitness but i'm I'm not a cyclist um i didn't even learn how to ride a bike until i was about 15 i know that's pretty sad um actually it's worse i didn't learn how to swim until i was like 22 so yeah (laughs) (laughs) um but uh what's the longest you've ever gone on a on a on a ride
1: Right. longest ride has to be just over 200 kilometers.
0: Wow. Yep. Yikes, man. How, how long does that take on a bicycle?
1: Um, I can't exactly remember how long it took, but uh can easily cover 100Ks in about three and a half hours.
0: Wow. So I'm assuming then that this would have been like close six hours, maybe seven, to do 200Ks then?
1: Nah, uh, when it gets to 200K, you, you tend to slow down a little bit. So probably okay. closer to seven, seven and a half. Seven and a half
0: eight hours.
1: hours yeah. Wow. It was a full day thing. Yeah, it's a full day thing then.
0: That is intense, bro. So like, do you have to like load up on carbs before you do this sort of thing?
1: Yeah. So you carb load the night before. Um, favorite has got to be spaghetti and then early in the morning have a nice uh, nice banana some fruit uh, water and then off you go and you bring some food along
0: the way as well Wow that is intense man my hat off to you bro um <laughs> that's like some, some crazy Iron man stuff have you ever thought of doing like Tour de France or, or or I mean I don't know anything about this world so maybe Tour de France is a bit like you know um, I'm just speaking out of ignorance here but I know a lot of cyclists and, and then there's Iron man as well ever thought about doing any of those?
1: Yeah, I've actually done both. Um, I oh, was on a I am team, so I didn't do this. I didn't do the running or the uh, the swimming because uh, I swim, but the thing is that I don't swim fast. Mm. Uh, I run, but I, my knees. I worry for my knees because I used to play soccer a lot and uh, I hurt my knees before, so I I don't run, but I ride, and so I did the Ironman at Mandurah down a couple of years ago, and then. For tours, cycling tours are really cool. Well, obviously, I can't ride a Tour de France. I'm not quick enough okay. for, for that. Um, and it's all professional. So, but my team, uh, we rode the Tour of Margaret River just last yeah. year. And we came up overall third in our category. So that's really good.
0: That's uh, awesome.
1: multi-stage race. So four races in uh, three days.
0: Wow. That's incredible, man. Yeah, listen, dude, my hat's off to you. I, I I love exercise, but that's just way too much cardio for me, man. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I would, um, I don't know, man. I think I'd, I'd probably die. Uh, the, the most cardio I've ever done uh, was when I did, I ran a Tough Mudder, which was 11Ks. And uh, that wasn't so bad because you stop every few Ks to do an obstacle. So, you know, it's kind of like, eh, you know? Yeah, it wasn't like 11Ks straight. That's just not, uh, yeah, it's not for me, man. <laughs> So Matt, um, so I wanted to chat with you. Um, thanks for thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for um, being willing to to call in. We we did have some some technical difficulties, so uh, we're doing our best to get the get the episode recorded. Um, but I really believe that um, this is going to be an awesome conversation because years ago, three years ago, you wrote a pro. You wrote a a, a paper for um, for your university for your master's degree. Uh, masters yes. in uh, in ministry, am I right? Yes,
1: that's right. Yep. So, hey. math, master of arts in ministry.
0: Yep. And and you sent that paper uh, to a few people. Um, apart from your professors and just a few of us, and we read it. And I remember reading it and telling you, dude, you have to publish this. This is amazing. This is shocking. This is eye opening. This is you know, uh, encouraging as as well as as really challenging. Um, and so, finally, three years later, it's up online. Anyone can download it. You can just go to pomoPastor.com/tools, and you can find it there. It's it's a paper. We've we've sort of labeled it as an ebook because it is sort of laid out as an ebook, um, or as a book. You know, it's got its chapters and and, and categories, and it's called um, "Is Does Traditional Evangelism Still Work?" Now, that wasn't the original title of your paper. That's just what we've called it to put it online. Um, yep. But I want to talk about that. I want to talk about personal evangelism. I want to talk about your your experience with this book. Um, what you discovered? Is it dead? Does it live on? And what can we do as as Adventists to reach people? So I wanted to start uh, out with a really simple question, and it is a question that you address. Is really, I, I suppose, the foundation of of your book. Um, is public evangelism dead? That
1: is a loaded question, bro. Um, I kind of think.
0: <laughs> I like them loaded, bro. I think
1: the, the, short, the short answer is public evangelism is yes. The long answer would actually uh, describe why I said yes in the context because um, most of us use public evangelism as a go to for the be all end all of evangelism for a whole year. I mean, the church says. Let's do public evangelism. We want to get people in. Um, we, want, we want to bring people to Jesus and then they plan a PE, a public evangelism program, and they do it, and then uh, nothing much really happens. So is it dead? Short answer is yes.
0: So what I hear you saying that is that um, it's dead, and, and and we'll get into this a little bit more, it's dead, but it's it's not dead because it's inherently um not good. It's dead because of the way we relate to it as a church.
1: I would, I would actually put it in the, in a context of let's say, um, wow. Let me think of an idea since I like to ride bicycles. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the, in, in bicycles, you have, and you have a whole bicycle. Okay. If you break it down, you've got the handlebars, you've got the, the frame, you've got the wheels, and then you've got the drag train. So the question to me, uh, when it's put across, is public evangelism dead? You'd be basically, uh, if I if I take the illustration of a bike, it would be, is the uh, can the bicycle work without a drivetrain? train? And I say no, it won't work. So does the drive train work on its own? No. So is public evangelism dead? Oh yes. Is the drivetrain dead? If uh, does it work if it's not part of the bike? Um, answer is. No,
0: it won't work. It's dead. Mm. I love that, bro. That's a really good illustration. Yeah. So so yeah, like basically what, what I'm what I'm gathering is it, it's gotta be part of something bigger than itself. Like we tend to treat it like this is like you said earlier, like this is the end all be all of evangelism. We're gonna have this public evangelistic yep. thing in the you know, at this point of the year and, and that's you know, we put all our eggs in that one basket and then and that's it. And and what you're saying is that's why it's dead. It's dead because we treat it like, like the drive train on a bicycle. We, we remove it from the rest of the bike. And and of course it's not going to function. It, it it's, it's not connected exactly, to the rest. Exactly.
1: Right. Yeah. However, however, we do it because it has worked for us in the past. Mm. So in the past, you know, um, when, when the Adventist movement just started, we'd have like tent meetings and the tent meetings are so popular. And we have we have debates. The public evangelism campaigns were basically kind debates. At some points, heaps of people would come, and heaps of people get baptized. I mean, it used to work in the past, and most uh, many of us are still stuck in the past, and we still use it, expecting to yield the same results in a world that's different.
0: Wow. So, so do you think that? Because I'm really, like, you, you brought up some points there that I think are, like, there's, they're really interesting to me. And and the way in which we, we've done evangelism in the past, it, it has worked. And um, But do you think that even though it worked in the past, that it was necessarily the best method to use then as well? Because... Like you said, a lot of times the evangelism in the past was debate-oriented. And so basically what it did was it created a culture within the church of people who just wanted to argue. Um, they were converted through arguments and, and they lived out their experience that way. And, 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 and so in many ways, I feel like, yeah, it worked in the past if you measure success by a worldly standard of how many numbers joined the church. But it didn't work if you measure success by... What kind of culture did it create in the church? Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, it does. It does. Uh, at the same time, I think to throw another perspective in, apart from the fact that uh, it created a culture where it's i I'm right, you're wrong kind of thing within the Christian world, um, back then it was also a world where there wasn't such a thing called a relativity of truth. Mm. So when, when truth was given, and people accepted the truth they said yeah this is true so i'm all in and so you didn't I mean, that's that's part of the reason why public evangelism does exactly what today as well but uh it's part of the conversation but also a different section let's not go into it yeah, them, yeah. No.
0: <laughs> <laughs> i was i was just thinking the same thing i was like oh dude this is this is like we need we need to do like a like an interview part 2 or something <laughs> so we can so we can talk about postmodernism stuff just really quickly for, for those who who haven't read um the ebook is tradition does traditional evangelism still work you do go into those particular issues a little bit more there so but I think it'd be great to to have a conversation you know like a, a separate a separate conversation later on a separate episode where we where we dive into that because that's a big topic um and and even though we're not digging too deep into that today i i it does bring up my next question and that is when we're talking about the challenges in public evangelism one of the things that you point out in your ebook is that the the challenges tend to be more of a western challenge than a non-western challenge if i remember correctly so you talk about how public evangelism or the, the traditional method of evangelism functions in a third world country versus how it functions in in the first world countries like UK, Australia, America. Um, So tell me a little bit more about what you discovered as you were exploring traditional evangelism in that context of third world versus first world.
1: Well, um, what I found was actually rather interesting. The basics of it was that in the uh, developing countries, or what you just call this third world, there seems to be a, um, a longing, or there seems to be an acceptance, or a, a certain pull that public evangelism, traditional public evangelism, has uh, for people in developing countries. Whereas uh, for developed countries, uh, like, like ours here in Australia, um, there seems to be almost a disdain, or uh, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. People aren't interested. Mm. They, they won't just rock up just because you have something to say. It's as if the, the, it's as if the, the developed countries have people who go, wow, yeah, we're, we're, we're good, we're out there, uh, we're living in a place where everything is comfortable, and um, I just don't need to know more because what more do I need? Mm. Whereas those who, those who live in the developing world seem to have the, the mindset that, wow, I, I want to get hold of everything. Um, just to improve, just to, to know more and, uh, yeah, they, they just go for public veganism traditionally a lot better than, uh, where we live in. Yeah. Uh,
0: I think that, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a brilliant observation. Cause like I, I come from a Latin culture, um, where, you know, a lot of, a lot of Latin countries are, are sort of in that space. You know where where okay. there's a lot of suffering and there's a lot of civil war and there's just a lot of poverty, and so people tend to be very pre-modern in those countries in the sense that not only are they searching for uh, an answer, or not only are they searching for hope and peace, but they still believe that there's this absolute truth that can be discovered through whether it's the church or or whatever you know, um, it's mm-hmm. there, it's there to be grasped, it's there to be discovered. Uh, and so in many of those countries you know when you're a pastor you're almost like revered you know um whereas in in most you know secular countries you know developed countries like you know certain parts of the us or the uk or australia um you tell people you're a pastor and they're like what's that you know they don't even know what it is um so i think that's yeah i think that's a brilliant observation it's almost
1: like there's a disconnect you know is a disconnect with the spiritual the side of life in, uh, in the developed world.
0: Yeah. And, yeah. and I'll, I'll share with you how I heard one guy put it, and I don't remember who put it this way, because I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Um, I'm going to butcher what he said a little bit, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. He said that... The problem, Because you know how like a lot of skeptics will say, oh, people in these third world countries, they come to God because they're suffering and they need an answer. You know, they need a crutch or something. Um, whereas in Western societies, we're so developed and we're so smart and, you know, we've got, you know, the enlightenment and science and all this stuff. We don't need God anymore. That's for all those other people. Um, I heard one guy say that it's actually, it's actually the other way around. The reality is that people in these countries, they're suffering And because they're suffering, what suffering does is it removes the plastic from our eyes. It it removes the veneer, the facade of existential reality. And, And it puts into perspective the things that really matter. Whereas here in the West... We live with these plastic blindfolds where everything's about the credit card and the car and the computer and the iPad and, you know, and the money and all that stuff. So, so the reality is it's not us who are more enlightened. We're actually blinded. And so when we do evangelism, we have to do evangelism in a way that speaks to those blindfolds in Western society that don't exist in other societies. What, what do you think about that?
1: I was, uh, sorry, sorry, I I, I, I zoned out a little bit. I was thinking about something at the beginning of the, the quote. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do have a thought. Yeah. I do have a thought. Um, I, I, actually, I actually agree with that statement, uh, mostly. Hmm. But, but I'd like to come at it from a different point of view. Instead of saying that we who are in the, uh, the first world or developed countries uh, having plastic goggles over our eyes, um, it reminds me of the phrase first world problems," mm. um, but the fact is, whether it's third world or first world, you still have problems. It just manifests itself differently. Mm. Um, when we look, when we look at history, historically, adventism. I mean, the the first, the first missionaries that were sent out um, over to Europe from from America, and then over to Asia. Everything was about we are and. I don't mean to offend you, man, but you're American, and uh, I have to say this—it's <laughs> all um, good. It was—it was all the—it it was the—it was the white missionaries who went across, and uh, who did not want to con- contextualize the the situation there. So, along with everything else, uh, with 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 this new religion called Christianity, and and particularly Seventh Day Adventism, uh, these missionaries. Brought along with them also white culture mm. i'm not saying it's a bad thing but they basically came across to and i'll speak i'll speak for asia because i'm asian mm. and so i'll speak for asia so basically the missionaries come over and they go like oh you guys can't be doing this now right? you gotta dress this way you got to eat this way that's not good for you but they they've been doing that we've been doing that for a thousand years and everything's fine mm. i mean the the asians are still living <laughs> 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 these, these missionaries come along and go like Guys, this this is what you got to do That's totally wrong, man That's not good for you And and it's a whole lifestyle change and everything We see it in Africa as well I mean, the whole the whole culture where When you go to church, you wear your Sabbath best. And I'm not saying that that's not good But it's a bit ridiculous in Asia and in Africa Where it's like 40 degrees And the humidity is super high And you're expected to wear leather shoes Black slacks, jacket, vest and a tie.
0: Yeah,
1: I mean, who in the right mind does that in in Asia? In Asia, they put their own clothes for, for all the weather that still look decent and stuff like that. So it's more than just the message, but the whole culture and worldview that they brought over, which deemed for which deemed that the the these people in developing countries had a problem, mm. and to some extent, maybe they had a problem, uh, but. I don't think that it, it really mattered. Um, so in terms of problems as well, when we when we look at the mode of evangelism, so white man goes to Asia, everyone goes, oh my goodness, there's a white guy, I haven't seen that color before. Uh, and <laughs> They have this huge meeting, and, and in Asia it's really interesting because uh, a lot of Asia was actually colonized, uh, except for a few countries, like mainly China, was never really invaded. Um, apart from that, I think almost every other Southeast Asian country was colonized somehow. And um, so we had we had that we have that mentality, you know, that when the whites came over they brought good stuff. And so when they came, when when the missionaries came over, it almost seems to me as I look through the page of the history, um read about Adventism and Christian history, that the, the missionaries that came over, they came over with awesome intentions and awesome hearts for people but when they when they dished it out when they dished jesus out to them and everything they did not realize uh that the same methods that they were employing just because they were so-called special you know when you come from overseas even today man like australia big cat. if you have a local australian guy preaching do you think anyone's going to show up I mean, honestly, <laughs> we have that, we got to bring someone in from overseas, from America, from, from Europe, uh, to have the draw appeal. And it almost seems as if the appeal uh, that worked for these missionaries uh, when they went across uh, to do mission work um, has 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 continued down the years to today um, that, you know, well, it worked then. And it'll work now yeah we bring we bring in a speaker from overseas we get it done but truth be told the situation has totally changed well back to back to the original question about uh problems and stuff like that in third third world countries uh my view is that my view is that the uh when there are problems well there are problems but the 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 problems are not different from what we actually have. It's just a different context. Yeah. So while well, I agree that, while well, I agree with that statement that says that, yeah, the problems su- cause suffering and suffering actually makes them more um, open to the gospel. While well, I agree with that, I also question it because um, are the problems. Or do the problems exist because we call them problems or do the problems actually exist? Do, do those people actually truly um, identify their problems as problems and their suffering as suffering as we look uh, mm. at their situation?
0: Yeah. No, that's, man, that's a really good point. And, and there's actually quite a, there's actually about two or three different things that um, that evolved or, or that, that sort of came out um, as you were sharing there. Um, all of them, which I think are really, really important. In fact, I think we could make a different episode on each on each of those, bro. You, you're gonna be a regular on this podcast, man. <laughs> so, um, you know, one of the one of the central things that you you discussed here was obviously, you know, the difference between evangelism and colonialism, and that um, we we have historically confused the two or we've melded the two. So, colonialism is yeah. a dominant culture coming in and saying, in order for you to be um accepted in our society you've got to become like us so a european culture yeah. coming to africa and saying you must become like europeans and we've we've amalgamated that with evangelism and so when we preach the gospel it's not just the naked gospel that we're preaching we're also preaching <laughs> european culture or eurocentric values and um and i agree like that's a challenge because it's a challenge that we face even within our own country when we try to evangelize to the secular or postmoderns or whatever we're basically communicating with an inherent barrier, and that barrier is: in order for you to be one of us, you you have to become, you have to embrace this sort of culture first, and then you can become a follower of Jesus. And I think that that's really problematic. But I mean, I think that's a whole other episode as well. <laughs> but um, but I mean, the point is, as you were saying, that you know, there there are these differences between the third world and and the first world, and how we perceive them and how we deal with them is different as well, because we've got all this. You know, like when I've got dramas, I can just, you know, I can just drive down to like Hoyt and watch, you know, like movies all day long or t- pop on Netflix and just binge, you know. Um, and so whereas people in, in, in other places, underdeveloped places may not have that. So they've actually got to confront their issues and God is a part of part of that confrontation, you know. Um, Now, I wanted to switch gears a little bit because uh, we're we're, we're running short on time. But what I wanted to do was I wanted to actually jump into some of the stuff you say in your book, um, some of the data, because what you do in this book is you do a case study on the city of Perth, which for those who are listening, Perth is a city in, in Western Australia. It's, uh, it's a pretty typical westernized, um, developed, you know, postmodern, secular type of city. It's a smaller city. It's not as big as Sydney. Um, but it's a pretty typical city uh, with, with a lot of the typical challenges that you find in Western culture and Western context. And so what Nat did for, for his research project was he researched tr- um, traditional public evangelistic campaigns that were held by Adventists here in the city of Perth. Um, from the year 2011 up to about 2014, if I recall the dates correctly, because I'm really bad with yep. dates. Um, but what I wanted to do really quick was I just wanted to jump in. I'm, I'm on page 51 of your book. I'm looking at a chart from one of the local churches here um, that shows the total amount of baptisms and and then it shows public evangelism. You know, total baptisms is blue, public evangelism is red, other ministries is green. And basically what it's saying is where did the baptisms for this church come from? And so what you identify here, and I'll look at a few pages because this trend repeats itself, is that that out of the total number of baptisms that this church had, none of them came from public evangelism. Um, And in in fact, you look at the public evangelistic campaign that was held in 2012, which was a really massive one. There was a lot of effort put into it. Um, this is the one I believe where they did the whole archaeology thing in, the, in in the in the shopping centers to get people to come, et cetera, et cetera.. That's right. um, and, and you look at the data from 2010 to 2013, all the baptisms that this church had. And when you look at 2012, not only was it the year with the least amount of baptisms, it was also the it, it also shows that not a single one of the baptisms on that year came. Because of the public yes. evangelism campaign. And I find, I just, I'm shocked, you know, because it's, it's one thing to talk about, yes, we it doesn't work because I've got these anecdotes and these personal experiences. And I think this is what I found most remarkable about your project is that you're you're putting it this in graphs where we can see the colors and the numbers and it's just mind blowing. Um, so for those of you who haven't had a chance to download the ebook, just again, pomopass.com slash tools. You can download it there. Go to page 51. You can look at the chart I'm looking at. Total number of baptisms declined significantly for this particular church in 2012. And even then, the baptisms that they did gain, not a single one was from this public evangelistic campaign that cost tons of money and was really, really draining on resources and and energy. That's Um, correct. So... I'm gonna just point out a few other ones, and then and then I just want to get sort of you know some of your like emotive response as you were as you were unearthing this data because I can imagine as you were unearthing this data that you were sitting there like oh my goodness wow <laughs> you know um, so in the next page page 52 again you pull up another church here in the Perth Metro area um, their total number of baptisms and actually in 2012 they had a they had a good spike um a significant increase in baptisms and this was the year that those public evangelistic campaigns were, were going um mm-hmm. so it has significant spike in baptisms on the year 2012 but once again not a single one of them were attributed to the public evangelism campaign which is that is correct which is shocking and i've got one more that i'm looking at here um and again yeah uh Lots of baptisms in 2010, this is the third church, lots of baptisms in 2011, very few in 2012, a whole bunch more in 2013, and of the very few in 2012, none of them came from the the public evangelism campaign. And so what you do, and I don't have time to go into all the details, but what you do is you show where they actually do come from, these baptisms. They come from all these other ministries. Um, including one I think I might have passed it already let me take a look Um, yes this was the first church I looked at where the vast majority of their baptisms were coming from ministry at a detention center Um, and then another one where you know it was from the from the camps you know the the, the annual summer camps for the teenagers and things like that but what what were you thinking because I know you knew this already I know you knew to a certain degree what you were going to find but when yeah. you see these numbers crunched together, what was going through your head as as you saw like just the utter irrelevance of these campaigns and all the money and energy that they took when it came to the growth of the church in Perth?
1: I think um, as you as you mentioned earlier, this is the, the unspoken thing that's around most of our churches. I mean, lots of ministers actually Later on in the book, you know, at the end of it, I actually interviewed ministers in Perth. Um, mm. Obviously, they're, un- they're not named, which is a good thing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they, they basically indicated that we did it because we were told to. It's not because uh, we really want it because we feel it doesn't work. Mm. And so, the, the guys like us who have been working. We know that somehow it doesn't work because... We've seen it. We've, we've done it. We've done it before, and we haven't seen results. Yeah. And uh, and so, uh, as I was putting this paper together, um, I guess wanted to to knock out, knock it down. You know, break it down into graphs, so that and, and numbers, uh, so that we could actually see that guys this is not working we need to look at other alternatives yeah. you know if, if something isn't working you you keep doing and doing and doing and doing the same thing over and over again i believe there's a word for that uh, <laughs> when, when <laughs> insanity work, you keep doing. yeah exactly yeah
0: um, yeah and, look I'm, so, I'm looking i'm looking here i just i'm just gonna jump in here real quick um based on what you're talking about right now page 65 of the pastors that you interviewed responded that they would choose an alternative method of evangelism. They would not have gone with this. They only did it because they were told to do it. But 88.89%, that's like a (laughs) sweeping majority said, you know what? I I don't actually have confidence in this. I I don't think this works. We just did it because we had to. That is correct.
1: That is correct. But the thing is that no one... As even in the local church, hardly anyone stands up to say, "Guys, can we do something else?" Mm. It's it's always a um, unfortunately a, a very small vocal minority yeah. that pushes for traditional public evangelism, um, just because it's it's something they love.
0: Yeah, it's it's what we've always done, and and you know, there's a, there's another chart that I looked at here. I think it's in page sixty or fifty-six. From, from the largest yeah. church here in, in, in Perth um, where yeah, yeah, yeah. I look at the, yeah yeah where I look yeah. at the chart and the the vast majority of people who attended like it, it compares the amount the total attendance versus those who were visitors and and the total attendance is red and the visitors is blue and the red is just overwhelming on the chart I mean the people who came to this series were already Adventists. And yet the visitors are smacked down at the bottom, and there's just a plateau all the way through, and it's very minimal. And and for me, when I look at that, things,
1: say again. A couple of things. A couple of things I want to talk about that graph. Yeah. Um, is that there, there? To me, there are three things that jump out. Number one, that all this, all this, um, all the resources that we pour into these public evangelism programs, um, actually. We actually end up uh, doing it for the Saints, which is rather yeah. interesting because while, while we say we want to get the public, uh, we get a lot more of our own members. The ratio of members to visitors uh, is, is obviously skewed.
0: Yeah, it's very um, shocking. Yeah. And that's what I was just about to say. As I look at this chart, what it looks like to me is here's an event that we put on to hear ourselves talk. And a few of very us... Much invited some people, maybe. I don't know how those visitors came there, but a few visitors came. Um, but for the most part, this looks like an event that was overwhelmingly designed for us to talk to ourselves. That's what it seems like. Correct.
1: But in the chart as well, in this in this particular case study, there is joy. There's good stuff that's happening as well. And yes. so there's a little bit of red. In fact, draw all the charts. You hardly see any red. And for those of you who have no clue what I'm talking about, if you download the book, um, you'll see that the red uh indicates basically baptisms um as a result of an evangelistic campaign hmm. so this is one of the few charts that actually has a red on it and the good thing that was happening at Livingston, um, this particular check was that the baptisms came about as a result of a process so these these yes. guys invited their friends so they had a relationship with their friends mm-hmm. uh they brought them to church at an opportune time where they were ready to accept Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior and also re- be ready to to, to join the church and so what we're seeing is that there's some people who who realize that evangelism is a process yeah. and they took the opportunity of having this uh this campaign available to actually bring their mates across um sit with them go through the program with them and watch them accept jesus and so that's the gold in, in this uh in this yeah in this section
0: yeah and listen thanks for bringing that up because that actually we can it actually brings us to the you know to the last thing that i wanted to talk to you about um which is where do we go from here right because what i see here i'm looking at that page that you're talking about page 56 it's the only chart i've seen that actually had baptisms maybe there's some more Um, but this, this particular church we're talking about is the only one where there's actually public evangelism related baptisms attributed to it in 2012. And we haven't even gotten into 2014. uh, We have, we won't have time for that. But, um, but like you said, it wasn't, those baptisms weren't the result of that campaign all by itself. They were the result of a process that people have been engaging in already. Um, from, I think it was from 2011, the year before Uh, they had already been engaging and so by the time the campaign was launched and held there were already people who had been on the journey they had they had learned about god they had gotten to know people at the church and they were ready to make that decision but it wasn't the result of just that one event which is the tragedy of many of the other um churches is they think oh yeah we'll just put it we'll put a big flyer we'll put a big poster and and people will come and skedaddle, you know or or skadoosh you know here we go bunch of baptism doesn't work that way so we that, talk, the perfect, oh, sorry go on go what, on
1: what, what you just said is the perfect segue because um the the current context that we live in today in post in, in the postmodern world whatever generation you're living in it is it is still 2018 and this is the this is the world this is the culture we live in if we're going to put up a big sign uh chances are no one's going to rock up mm. if people do rock up they're, if people do rock up they're far and few between and um, not only part two between sometimes we get um well for those who are listening you can decide whether you want to nail me or not but (laughs) (laughs) uh, when we have these kind of campaigns we get weird people coming uh i won't go into weird but i think marcus you know what i'm talking about yes um anyway so the context is that if, if we put flyers and stuff out if there's no relationship or no intentional relationships are being built, and everything is reliant on one program. Um, sorry guys, it's just not going to happen. Uh, we're yeah. not in the 1800s, we're not in the early 1900s where truth was not relative. Now, everyone thinks they got the truth. Um, and even within the church, I mean, there's, there's so much bickering um, within the church on certain issues like ordination and stuff like that. Yeah. But as, apart, from, apart from that the bottom line is that if we don't build relationships intentionally to introduce people to jesus christ nothing no amount of money spent um for public evangelism evangelism campaign or no amount of effort that you put into the campaign itself um is going to really cut it you're right because because it's all about intentional relationships Gone are the days where I can just say, Hey, this is the Bible. This, uh, someone on 105 says that like God's word is a, a lamp to my feet, light to my path. It's truth, you know. So, because it's truth, come here and have some truth and believe in it. No, today people want to know that you love them, you care for them before they will even bother to listen to what you have to say. Yeah, absolutely. And so, man. building relationships is, is so, so important. Um, I I put an example in, uh, I think it was like page 70 plus, um, there bit this flow track where, talk, where it's an amalgamation of uh, Matthew 28 and also Revelation 14. And um, basically brings brings public evangelism and puts it in a process. So we should begin with uh, intentionally building relationships, um, intentionally discipling someone. And, and, and the word discipleship, if I rewrote this paper, um, I would change the term, from discipleship to doing life together Mm. because it's you you build a relationship you do life together and and how does the phrase doing life together replace discipleship well it replaces discipleship because if you are a follower of jesus you will be living according to what jesus wants you to do and and say and be every single day and therefore when you live with someone you are discipling that person already through living and doing life with them Mm. Um, through the through the doing through doing life together then goes to, to step three where because of the relationship because of your lifestyle people will start to ask the question what do you have that i don't and that's where we start to dive deeper into the teachings about christ that's right and uh, that's about teaching all things uh in the in the great commission yeah and after teaching about christ then we go to, to baptism well the person isn't ready continue to keep talking about christ teaching about christ teaching all things and then when they get baptized then they need to be commissioned with the commission mm. to go out to do life with other people yeah. by building relationships and the whole the whole thing just goes round and round basically
0: yeah So it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's sort of like the way I envision it in my head. It's, it's like a circular pathway of growth. It's not, it's not a dot on the radar of someone's life. Like that's how I picture the way we do traditional public evangelism It's like, here's the radar of a person's life. And here's this dot of this event. But what you're saying is it's not, it's not a dot on the radar. It's, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a pathway. It's a circular pathway. It feeds into itself. So you reach someone for Christ um that person, you know, you, you disciple them into their relationship with Christ, they become baptized, but it's not over. Now now those people are commissioned to go out and reach others for Christ, and that just continues to repeat and repeat.
1: That is absolutely right. Um in fact most recently Bill Heibels in the Who wrote Purpose Youth Ministry, I think like fifteen years ago or even more. Yeah. PDYM, that was like the go to manual for youth ministry man. Right? Um that would have been P- Doug Fields.
0: P- Doug Fields. Oh, Doug, yeah, yeah, my
1: bad, Doug Fields. Yeah. Thanks for correcting me. Uh, yeah, and, exactly. and so Duck, Duck Fields had, the five, had, had five Cs. Mm. You, you, had the, uh, you had the community,
0: mm-hmm.
1: crowd, congregation, committed, and core. Yeah. And for the, for the most time, for the last decade and a half or, or so, you, they, they'd run with that. So everything starts from the community ends up with the core. Mm-hmm. But more recently, I think in the last year or two, they added one more to that chart. It's like a target. So for those of you who have no clue, just do Google uh, Doug Fields, uh, Purpose-Driven Youth Ministry, or you can write uh, PDY and concentric circles. Uh, And what you find is that they added one more, which is commission. Hmm. And so uh, all, all this while... From bringing people in from the community all the way to the core, they realized that people weren't, weren't exactly fulfilling the Great Commission because they were stopping uh, once people got committed. That's right. And so they realized that, wait, part of the equation is actually commissioning these guys who are in the core to go and... To go out to the community again to get the whole process going mm. so what what i put down in my in my book is, is is really not something new i'm just bringing stuff that's already out there and where public evangelism comes in and can be really really effective um but whether you want to spend the money or not is is, is well up to the local conference or church it's about is between teaching and baptism mm. um because when you teach people about Christ, there are some people who are just experts and really good at particular things. I mean, uh, you get some, some evangelists, uh, evangelists that we know of in the happiness sphere would be guys in Australia like what, Gary Webster, you've got, um, you've Jeff got Yolden. Gary Ken, Jeff Yolden, um, and you still got Mark Pinney who's still, who's still kicking around, which is great, and his wife, Teeny. Yep. And uh, they do great jobs in different areas, and so when we, uh, we uh, at local churches or or conferences, um, when we don't have the the skill set to deliver messages that uh, of a certain of a certain type, whether it is prophecy, whether it is about uh, the gospels, whether it's about um, why we should make decisions, or even the Sabbath. If, if we if we're not like super good at the bringing message across that's where we bring someone in to help recur and add value to the uh, to the journey that these people who are seeking to know more about Jesus are on and then yes. that happens and the process continues
0: that's right yeah so public evangelism then it's and, 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 and I guess I can summarize your your book this way that pub- it's not about um throwing away public evangelism. It's about rediscovering where it fits in the bigger picture as part of a journey, as part of a process. And if we can come to see public evangelism not as the end all be all of evangelism, but as just another step in the process, then it can reclaim its effectiveness and its relevance in people's lives. It's it's when we see it as the end all be all that we'll continue to waste resources and energy on, on it because it's never intended to just work all by itself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: Um, the sad thing is that we've, you well, know, many, many of us have been guilty of, uh, making public evangelism, the all and all of the evangelism, which is exactly why in some of the charts, um, especially one of the charts in, I think page 56 or something like that. We have that, that year where it's like the lowest, almost no baptisms at all. And, and that particular church, um, I would I would say from the analysis from, from analysis of the data, um, you could actually say that the baptisms dropped because all the eggs were put in one basket, and mm. the church actually could have slacked off uh, in reaching out to people, as because there was a big program that was coming up. Yeah. And so when we when we when we don't look at it as a process and just try, to, try to make public evangelism the big thing for the whole year i think we've missed the point
0: you're right yeah absolutely man dude this has been an an, an awesome conversation bro i've learned a lot i've been blessed and inspired once again guys if you haven't had a chance to read the book does traditional evangelism still work we've only scratched the surface there's so much there there are uh, let me just take a look i'm taking a look now there's um there's seven different chapters and, um, you know, starting from the history of evangelism, apocalyptic prophecy and Adventism and, and all the way down to where we're discussing now, just some of the basic points of where do we go from here? How do we do better? And, and it's all there guys. It's free. Pull slash tools. Just give it a download. And that, uh, Nat, before I let you go, I just got one more question yeah. for you, man. If someone's listening to this podcast or reads your ebook and they decide, wow, this is, this is great material. Um, and I, and I want to know a little bit more, or I want to have a conversation and maybe see how I can do things a little bit better. Can they contact
1: you? Yeah, definitely. Um, you can drop me an email at Nathaniel Tan at Adventist.org.au, or just hit me up on Facebook, Nat Tan.
0: Cool, so Nathaniel Tan, and that surname is just T-A-N, at Adventist.org.au, yeah, right. and, or that's we can right. find Nat Tan, on facebook man so if any of you guys hearing this and you think you know what i've got some questions for Nat. this is um you know for evangelism in my area or, or whatever it might be it's more than happy to chat with you guys just give them a call give them an email well not call we didn't give your number but give them a facebook message um or an email and uh listen man i know you got to go i know you got things to do um it's friday here it's going to be sabbath soon so i've got to i've got a lot of cleaning to do myself but um Bro, thanks so much. Uh, number one for for doing this project, and number two for putting it out there, and number three for just coming on uh, the podcast today to talk and to share and to dialogue. Um, it's been absolutely amazing. And for some of those other topics that popped up that were really tempting, uh, we'll have to uh, we'll have to sit down again some other time and, and chat about them, man. But um, yeah, that, that, sounds,
1: that sounds sounds like a good plan, man. Awesome, bro. Um, Definitely, definitely have to sit down and talk with you. And to those of the listeners who've got questions or comments, uh, I'll be very happy to engage with you. Um, Do note that the the research, although it's fairly new, I would consider it as a little bit old already because it's already three years. um, And uh, in three years, lots of things can change. Mm. But um, hey, let's keep the conversation going. Um, I want to learn from you as much as uh, you might want to know what I may know. So... Yeah, thank you. And thanks, Marcus, for the opportunity.
0: Right on, man. No worries, bro. Well, I'm going to let you go. And
1: uh, once again, man,
0: thanks. And I hope you have an awesome Sabbath. Well, that's all I've got time for today. But if you want some more, just come hang out at pomopastor.com. Thanks again for spending some time listening to the
1: podcast. I'll catch you on the next one.